Welcome to Planet Surgery, a medical podcast by Baxter Advanced Surgery Team. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Planet Surgery podcast series of Baxter. Insights into the world of surgeons, surgery, and perioperative practitioners across Europe. My name is Gerhard Mörsdorf, and I'm the Medical Affairs Director for Advanced Surgery in EMEA. At Baxter, our vision is to be a global innovative leader in the operating room, providing solutions that improve patient outcomes and enhance lives. Baxter's podcast program is a new way for you to hear from colleagues across the world. Today, I have the pleasure to interview Professor Thomas Minowski. Professor Minowski is a neurosurgeon and head of the Department of Neurosurgery at the University Hospital Antwerp in Belgium. He has specialized in neurovascular and cranial base surgery and in the surgical treatment of intracranial tumors, peripheral nerves, and moya moya. Today, he will talk to us about his checklist for neurosurgical hemostasis, which is used as a multidisciplinary approach to better manage neurosurgical patients perioperatively. So warm welcome, Professor Minowski, and thank you for sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Dr. Mersdorf. I'm happy to be part of this podcast, um, as I think that hemostasis is extremely important, and therefore I'm happy that uh, for this initiative from the Baxter Company. Great. Thanks a lot. To start this conversation, Professor Monoski, could you explain to us why optimal perioperative hemostasis management is so important in neurosurgery? Yes, of course, I, uh, I will do that. So the intraoperative or perioperative hemostasis is, uh, is uh, important in all fields of surgery, but especially in neurosurgery for the following reasons. First of all, the skull and the vertebral column is a rigid system and the brain and the spinal cord cannot expand within the skull or the vertebral column. So uh, every inc um, pressure uh, increase is, uh, is detrimental for the function and the anatomy of the nervous system. So um, you don't want to have any post-operative hemorrhage because uh, usually that is, um, it implies a neurological impairment. And also you can uh, do a lot of harm to the nervous system. So that's about post-operative hemorrhage. But of course, intraoperative hemostasis is important as well because if you have a considerable amount of blood in your field, you cannot oversee, oversee the, the, the intraoperative uh, uh, picture and the field. And the blood tends to stick to tissue. So suppose you are working and there is a lot of blood loss around you. Within a couple of minutes, the blood will stick to the tissue and you have to start your dissection actually all over again to remove the blood from the uh, the, the surgical field, which is uh, costly and can lead to iatrogenic damage. Third reason to, uh, to, uh, for uh, paying attention to hemostasis is that um, you, the, the human body has a certain amount of blood, a certain amount of coagulation factors, platelets, 
minerals, uh, and you don't want to disturb this homeostasis. Homeostasis is to keeping the, the, the balance of all anatomical, physiological, chemical processes um, uh, in normal range. And if you have a lot of blood loss, then you uh, derange actually the physiological coagulation system. And if you lose more than, let's say, 1.5 liter uh, blood, then it uh, you see that the coagulation and normal hemostasis is impaired. And overall, if you don't, if you leave not much blood behind in the operative field, then your wound and postoperative course is is uh, is normal and uh, without without uh, risk of having complications such as infection, uh, postoperative fever, um, swelling, and pain. Great, thanks a lot. I think. Uh, it's now well understood what are the special requirements in neurosurgery regarding hemostasis. And you already distinguished between intraoperative and postoperative hemorrhage. Um, that leads me to the next question. What elements does your checklist for neurosurgical hemostasis comprise? Where does it start and where does it end? Yeah, thank you. This is a very good question. So the checklist um, is actually to make sure that for a certain procedure of certain aspect of a procedure is well, uh, well performed, both pre-op, intraoperatively and post-operative. So the checklist actually starts when you see the patients uh, at the polyclinic or wherever. So you have to ask uh, what's your medical condition? Do you have any diseases that impair the um, coagulation uh, system? Do you take any medication that uh, impairs the uh, coagulation? If you want to know whether there will be some problems regarding hemostasis, to ask the patient, do you bleed easily? So that's the preoperative uh, uh, aspect of the checklist to see is there bleeding tendency, is there any uh, diseases and medication that might impair the hemostasis? So you are well prepared. It's like pilot before the flight uh, uh, is, uh, is taking off that you check both the plane and the weather conditions at the, uh, uh, at the start and at the landing. Intraoperatively, you have to have, uh, everything has to, has to be right. So you start just before you start the operation. Uh, do we expect any problems? Has the patient had blood pressure? Is there anything from the pre-op checklist? And then is, are there uh, the hemostasis products that you want to use, are they present? And not only present in the hospital, but present in the room and easily uh, accessible. Then during the operation, you ask the anesthesiologist to uh, check the blood pressure. Um, we regularly operate in uh, the patient in slight hypotension. That means uh, around 100 uh, systolic and 60 uh, diastolic blood pressure. Why? Because this blood pressure, slightly hypotensive, does not do harm to the tissue because still with hypotension, the tissues are well oxygenated and, and perfused. But if you have bleeding, it bleeds less, of course, if there is a low pressure than if there's high pressure. Same with, suppose you have a 
uh, leak from uh, from a bath tube, then the, if the bath tube is very is uh, is uh, full, okay, it's uh, is, is full, then the pressure on the leak is much higher than if the bath is only slightly filled. So, blood pressure is important determinant for blood loss. Then. Um, uh, positioning of the patients is also on the checklist important. In our case, the head, most importantly, slightly tilted above the heart to increase the blood pressure locally in the, in, in the brain. Um, of course, the, the neck of the patient has to be free. There should be no congestion because congestion leads to venous uh, blood pressure um, uh, increase that leads to more blood loss. Then after the procedure is, is done, uh, we always ask the anesthesiologist to put the pressure uh, in the normal range for that type of patient. So that if you do final hemostasis, that you don't do this when the blood pressure is very low, because if you do the hemostasis with the pressure being very low, everything can seem dry. You close it and the patient starts to wake up, will get uh, sure uh, higher blood pressure and then um, inside the body something might start to leak because the hemostasis that you have done with hypotension is not that secure as hemostasis done with normal tension so we ask the anesthesiologist can you do a normal uh, normal blood pressure and then if everything is dry we can proceed with closure uh, another uh, aspect of preventing uh, hemorrhage Intra and postoperative to close layer to layer. So every layer that you have opened should be closed accordingly. Um, we tend to uh, um, decrease the dead space. So sometimes in a wound, you have like a dead space. We try to limit this dead space as much as possible because in dead space, you can have accumulation of blood, transudate, exudate. And these blood products can trigger the fibrinolysis and increase the fibrinolysis and then uh, degrade the hemostasis flux earlier than you want to. So that space, especially in spine surgery, is important. And uh, depending on uh, the type of procedure and the patient, we may have uh, placed a post-operative wound drainage to, uh, yeah, to drain the blood. And it has been shown in many studies that a negative pressure in the wound is beneficial for wound healing and final blood loss. Now we are at the post-operative part and then at the recovery of an intensive care unit where the patient is brought after, after the surgery. And then um, it is very, um, it's important to have a good uh, information transferred to the, to, to, to the doctors uh, in intensive care of the recovery about the instructions about the position of the patient. If you have, if you, in case of uh, cranial neurosurgery, it is um, mandatory that the head is placed well above the heart. So 20 or 30 degree tilt of the bed is beneficial because the head is then not congested. Instructions about blood pressure. You don't want to have hypertension after surgery. That's something which regularly occurs. Uh, of course, even if you have performed very well hemostasis, there is a certain uh, um, certain level of blood pressure that the hemostasis will be not 
sufficient. So suppose we have done hemostasis intraoperative at 120, 80, everything is dry. This field will be will be dry till a certain uh, certain level of uh, of uh, blood pressure. But of, of course, you have to if you have a postoperative blood pressure around to 220 uh, slash uh, 120, there will be a, a, a blood pressure tension that will make that something will start to leak in the wound. So hypertension is something we want definitely want to avoid. Then, of course, all the checklists about the aspect of the wound, neurological function, uh, the blood loss in the suction drain uh, should be uh, checked and dealt with accordingly if they are uh, aberrant. And once the patients from the intensive care to the ward, also you check the, the blood loss in the suction drain aspect of the wound. You may do a laboratory testing to see whether the hemoglobin is uh, in the right uh, uh, range. Um, and uh, after the patient is recovered, you may start eventual medication uh, uh, that, in, that uh, interferes with coagulation. Usually we do it at day seven. We may start uh, uh, medication that has been stopped before the surgery in order to keep the hemostasis uh, normal. Thanks a lot. That sounds like this checklist is very comprehensive and really accompanies the patient on the total pathway through the hospital from admission until discharge. So mm -hmm. that leads me to a question, what was your main objective to develop this checklist? What did you miss in your clinical practice before to ensure optimal hemostasis management? Yeah, thank you for this question. The reason for developing this checklist was twofold. First, I, well, hemostasis and surgical techniques are my passion. So I have my checklist in my mind, but even the good surgeon or good pilot can forget something because we are humans and, and so that can happen. That's why you have a written checklist and not only checklist in your mind. So it's for me, it's a kind of awareness about a specific uh, specific element of surgery, namely hemostasis and blood saving procedures. So that's why I developed this checklist. And checklist, of course, very schematic, visual, and it uh, well, it, it is a kind of awareness for everyone involved in uh, patient care. And this checklist is not only for me, of course, but for everyone, even for the nurse, not even, also for the nurse, for the anesthesiologist, because the nurse knows, hey, checklist, we have to have flow C, we have to have silver clip, it's the bipolar uh, working. So it's awareness that makes surgery smoother and safer. Great, so I think it was very obvious that it's important to to talk across professions to each other and not only to have it in your head, but also use it in a written form to not forget anything and potentially also to have everything nicely documented. And you already mentioned that uh, all of your team members seem to, to use this uh, checklist. So how did you implement it? Well, the best implementation is if you give a good example. People just copy the behavior of the people around so the best way of implementing is to be very uh, particular and uh, concise about it and do it yourself. And then usually the, 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 the others follow. We are not in a way that we have to force it uh, that the checklist is used, but uh, 
the people that are not using the checklist, they will also not have its own checklist without this checklist. Great. I think you made it very clear. It is leading by example, just showing others leading by the example. value. Yes, yeah. leading by example. It's showing the others the value and not forcing them to use it, but uh, yeah. most of them accepted it on their own. And if not so, they at least learned that they have to, to make up their mind very well to remember the different uh, items on the checklist. Now, coming back to the interoperative part and hemostasis, which you said is one of your important topics to cover. Um, how do you communicate about interoperative bleeding within the team? How do you describe it? And do all the team members use kind of the same language, means uh, the same expressions describing bleedings? So there are two parts. So I have a common checklist. And after this checklist, uh, I have my own checklist in my head. And I say to the anesthetist and the residents, everyone in this OR room is equal. So there is no ranking. If someone of you, even if it's the cleaning lady, sees something which is odd and strange, please tell me without, uh, without paying attention to whether I'm a professor or not. There is no hierarchy in the uh, OR room. There is a leader, of course, like the, the operating surgeon and the anesthetist, but there is not a hierarchy because a lot of mistakes can be prevented. So that's about communicating about interrupt bleeding. If we have a bleeding, I will tell immediately to all, we have a severe bleeding. No one goes uh, out of the OR room. You call for help. Uh, the uh, resident of the anesthesiologist call his uh, supervisor and everybody is in sharp, uh, no use of telephones, uh, no uh, useless talking, etc. The other aspect of your question, how do you uh, describe the type and the bleeding? Yeah, that's a difficult one because there is not, a, there is not yet a scale for that. You can uh, define maybe an arterial venous bleeding, but of course a small arterial bleeding is much less harmful than a large venous bleeding from the uh, vena cava or from, uh, from a big sinus, uh, uh, like, like a sagittal sinus. So this is something we need to look into and try to uh, standardize it and describe it. So this is an open field for further research and, uh, and work. So that sounds that you would consider the use of a validated interoperative bleeding scale to be a benefit for the team. And there are yeah. first bleeding scales uh, published based on a requirement by the FDA. For example, the so-called VIBE scale published by Lewis and co-workers in 2017, which now comes more into play in the communication also of OR teams. And besides the communication using such a bleeding scale, would it also help in communicating and documenting for all surgeons across specialties, for example, in patient charts, in clinical publications or in registries? Yeah. That would definitely help. Uh, but of course, even you say you have an aneurysm rupture, one of the worst bleedings one can encounter in, uh, as a neurosurgeon, even then you can have a minor bleeding from the aneurysm till a fetal bleeding. It is difficult because the human body is so uh, not only complex, but so variable. Uh, and also the bleeding depends on the 
for example, the bleeding tendency, the skills of the surgeon, the skill of the nurse, the, the speed of the nurse. Some nurses are uh, very well prepared and they, even before the bleeding occurs, suggest, hey, uh, take care, this looks dangerous. Uh, can I pass you, uh, do you want to me have a flow seal or a seal? Um, uh, because this looks risky. So it's complex. Um, complex issue with a lot of factors and each of the factors is also not that easily uh, graded and you say scaled but it would be definitely help to try to at least group a number of bleedings into groups for scientific and clinical purposes great thank you and thanks a lot for your insights into your checklist which we nicely described here, but could the audience find it eventually somewhere? Uh, is there a link you could share with the audience uh, where they can find your checklist? Uh, no, I, I have made this checklist for my, my team, but of course I can provide, or you can provide a link from your uh, website where the, 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 the checklist is, is for use free for all because science and checklist should be available to, to all that. Great, thank you. Thank you very much again, Professor Minoski, for this very interesting conversation about your checklist for neurosurgical hemostasis management. It was a pleasure to have this interview with you. And to the audience, please contact us for any feedback or question. And if you want to be our next speaker, please click on the Contact Us button on this webpage. Thank you very much for listening and don't forget to come back in two weeks to listen to our next episode.